Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Elisa Martinuzzi, your head of EU banking for uh, Bloomberg. Elisa, will will the World Cup game cause Deutsche Bank to go under eight euros per share? Uh, I don't see much of a correlation there. But, um, <laughs> nice try. I think. I guess what we're seeing today, um, yeah, there's another sell-off. Uh, the stock has hit a, a new record low, an intraday low. I mean, it's, it's you know reflective of um, concerns that investors continue to have about the potential for for a turnaround at the firm, and you're also seeing potential concerns this week um, stemming from the qualitative part of the U.S. trust test that are due in tomorrow. Well, you bring up a really important point, and it's not just Deutsche Bank this morning, Tom. Twelve days of losses for financials on the S&P 500. Doesn't amount yeah. to a massive, massive move, but it's the longest daily right. losing streak on record. And I did what Elisa would have done. I compared BNP Paribas to Deutsche Bank. And to be fair to Deutsche Bank, BNP Paribas is not doing much better. Yeah, so Elisa, I just wonder what's going on with global financials at the moment and what underpins the, the overall concerns. Well, I think in Europe in particular, there's concerns that that interest rate rise that was expected at some point um, is being seen as further out into the future. Uh, and of course, that means that, um, you know, that the margins remain very, very, very thin in this region um, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, but you also have investors today saying that um, they think that even at these levels, these shares are, are overvalued, which, you know, is, is somewhat surprising yeah. given that they're significantly yeah. below what they were a decade ago. Elisa, in institutional America, there's something about $10 a share and then $5 a share in terms of ownership. Does that same constraint face Deutsche Bank in euros in Europe? Is there a trip point where all this matters? No, I don't think so. And we've seen the bank, you know, cross the, the nine euro mark before and then bounce back. So I don't think that's the case. Yeah. But but clearly the sustained <clears throat> lack of confidence um, is, is hurting the bank. And we'll see more right. of that potentially with second quarter where, you know, everybody's going to be focused yeah. on just how much of that revenue the bank can hang on to as it shrinks in, you know, in certain right. selected areas of investment banking. Question that came up earlier this morning, and, and Lisa, you've lived this in Europe which is negative interest rates in the financial system. Is part of this banking angst just the chronic negative rates that Europe has enjoyed? Well, I think that's obviously playing playing a role here. I think, you know, the economic... Uh, the you know the economic prospects here aren't um, you know the, the, they're not looking as prosperous as they would have been and but I guess with the potential hit from trade wars um, clouding the future clouding the outlook even further of course these banks need those economies to be growing which raises the question why the ECB doesn't respond to what these banks ultimately would like to see net net as the ECB just made the decision Elisa that ultimately that negative rates are what's best for the continent overall, even if it does hurt the banks? I guess so. And I think one other area that, that's come up recently is, you know, the, the regulators here are pushing for, um, you know, greater consolidation, and it's not clear that they have as much, um, you know, as much direct influence on the banks through, you know, through, through, because there's such a, um, a thinly spread market. Just to get a final question to you on the stress test results later this week, looking for the results, 
trying to gauge the ability of some of these big banks, how much they can pay out, how big the dividends will be. Are these stress tests stressful for these lenders or have they worked their way around things? Well, I think, you know, the experience has shown us the, the, the qualitative, qualitative parts of these tests, which is what we're going to be hearing about tomorrow, do have an impact. And, you know, in, in, for the European banks, the focus will very much be on Deutsche Bank. Elisa, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Very valuable uh, this morning. Elisa Martinuzzi, for years, just out front on uh, the Italian banking crisis and, of course, what we see across all of um, European banking. One of our great joys, our privileges in Bloomberg Surveillance is to talk to people of different opinions, and we particularly uh, enjoy talking to people that can holistically bring parts together like finance, like politics, and like the geography and history uh, that we all speak of. And one of those would be Stephen Roach. Of course, some would consider the inventor of modern market economics. He single-handedly did that in the digital space at Morgan Stanley years ago author of The Next Asia and, of course, at Yale University. Stephen Roach, good morning. President Xi has to respond. If Liz Economy tells me this is a new leadership in Beijing, what does President Trump underestimate or misjudge about President Xi? Well, um, what what, uh, the Trump administration is looking for by all these pressures on China, whether it's on uh, uh, tariffs, intellectual property, or investments, is for uh, Xi to capitulate on his core strategy of uh, innovation, uh, industrial policy, uh, and um, uh, pan-regional leadership. Uh, and, and Xi is not going to capitulate on those core principles. So, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're really uh, at, a, at a standoff here. And I think um, while, while China certainly <clears throat> does not want a trade war, they, they are not about... Uh, capitulation um, in in any sense of the word, Tom. How do you judge the moderates of the Trump administration? I would assume the announcement this uh, this morning on investment restrictions was a victory for Secretary Mnuchin, a victory for their former advisor, Gary Cohn, of course, for years with Goldman Sachs. But is he getting an articulate, moderate uh, advice stream at the White House? Not even close. I mean, you know, it's it's just a, a, a shading different degrees of um, uh, of China bashing. Some are more extreme than others. Uh, Navarro and Lighthizer are obviously at one end of the spectrum, but you know, not too far behind are the uh, sort of the the, the ones who would have um, uh, embraced this view as well. From from Cudlo to um, uh, Mnuchin, they just don't don't want to go quite to the extent that uh, the the extremists do, but they're certainly not um, an effective counterweight in this. And, and by the way, you know, while the markets are sort of encouraged over the uh, the apparent um, uh, backing off on um, uh, extreme measures on Chinese investment, uh, I think there's still a clear desire to use CIPI uh, is far more aggressively in restricting Chinese investment into the U.S. Uh, in anything even close to resembling their Made in China 2025 uh, industrial policy. And Stephen, doesn't that approach make a whole lot of sense? I don't think it makes any sense at all. Tell me I why mean, it doesn't, Stephen. 
because the, the tech, first of all, China is very effective now in developing its own indigenous uh, technologies. The idea that uh, they steal blatantly from us, the Navarro story, is hopelessly um, um, uh, out of date. And, you know, it, certainly there were some transgressions in the past, but I think um, since the Sunnyland Summit of 2015 and the reduction of Chinese um, state-sponsored cyber hacking, which is, um, there's clear evidence of that, uh, I, I think the, the, the Chinese are now far more um, uh, uh, temperate in their uh, exercise of uh, technology transfer. The whole concept of forced technology transfer through joint ventures was ludicrous from the start. I mean, this is, you know, Lighthizer's fiction to uh, justify the 301 uh, tariffs. Joint ventures, I was a partner of a joint venture with the Chinese. You know, these are commercial uh, um, uh, efforts, uh, legally uh, protected, uh, two partners collectively working together to build a business. Of course, they share uh, systems, they share people, uh, they share technologies. Uh, never once in my 15 years' experience in a joint venture with China was I forced to turn over anything uh, to my Chinese partners. But Stephen, I guess the argument is that if you want to operate in China, you are forced to go into a joint venture in in many sectors and in in many goals of these foreign companies. And I guess so. The you argument... know, if you don't like if you don't like you know the the, the requirements of the sure. joint venture, which by the way are being relaxed then maybe you don't have to operate in China. I mean, you know, you, no one is forcing you. But isn't that the argument, Stephen, from the U.S. side, that if that's the rules of the games in China, why shouldn't that be the rule of the game in the United States? Well, that, that, that's not the rules that the United States is, is imposing on China in any way whatsoever. I mean, the, the, the U.S. is now going to, um, depending upon how they, they enforce this new uh, strength and CFIUS uh, action, uh, the U.S. is simply going to deny China the right to participate in any type of venture, joint or otherwise, yeah. in the United States. And, and what China says is, come on in. We want you to, as partners, but we want you to do it within our legal and commercial structure. It's a very different concept. Well, Stephen, it's a very different approach. I, I struggle to understand whether the concept is different. The approach might be different. The uh, United States making it a little bit more difficult to a invest. A little bit. Wait, hold on, hold on. A little bit is not the right way to describe an actual well, let me finish refusal my sentence, to Stephen. participate. Well, just let me finish my sentence. Pushing it through CFIUS in a more stringent way makes it somewhat more difficult. We can have a, an argument about the degree. I don't think that's an adequate use of our time this morning. But I just think that the United States is possibly doing the right thing, and some people might agree with that, that if China wants to operate the way it is, then the United States is sending, sending a message, open up even more, otherwise we'll make it more difficult for you to invest in our economy. Yeah, but here's the inconsistency of, of, of what you're saying. The, the, the real hope for um, U.S.-China uh, to resolve their differences is precisely the point you're making, and that's market access. Uh, the Chinese want access to our markets because we're the world's um, uh, richest and deepest um, uh, markets, but we also need access to their markets because they're going to grow their consumer economy uh, in a way that, that no nation has ever done uh, in modern history. I've estimated in a, in a, in a book I wrote... Um, a few years ago on balance that the tradable portion of Chinese services uh, is going to expand by four to six trillion dollars between now and 2025. We have the most competitive, strongest services sector in the world. 
shame on us if we don't get a piece of that. So the answer is not restriction. The answer is opening up market access through a bilateral investment treaty, which the U.S. and China have failed to agree on uh, for 10 years. We're going exactly the opposite way. So your recommendation makes absolutely no sense. Steve Roach, uh, if you're just joining us, folks, Steve Roach of Yale University. In the time we've got left, Dr. Roach, I want to talk about the Chinese strategy here. Tit for tat is the media interpretation of this. Take us to Avinash Dixit in the art of strategy. What is the art of strategy for President Xi? What does does he just wait us out? Is that his number one factor? I think I think the 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 art of strategy is 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 having a diversified portfolio of, of foreign interests. So. Um, the, the U.S. and China have been uh, embraced in a, a very strong codependent relationship. I've talked to you about this for a long time, Tom. Yeah. And um, the the Chinese have probably put too many eggs in the American basket, and they don't have uh, a lot of natural allies in in in, in the region. So they have um, really embraced a much broader external strategy. So. The Belt and Road Initiative, connecting China through um, foreign direct investment into 64 other countries in the, in the region, uh, is important. Building a new financial architecture through the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, the, the new BRICS Development Bank. Um, China is uh, uh, broadening out uh, its uh, management right. of geostrategic relationships. So that's the strategy. So if the U.S., um, continues to try to contain China, uh, which has been, you know, an ongoing feature since the, the great Asian pivot of the right. Obama administration, then China's got other options. Well, Dr. Roach, thank you so much. Uh, Stephen Roach at Yale University, his wonderful book of a few years ago, The Next Asia. Without question, whatever your politics is across this nation, this is the interview of the day. We will feature this on our podcast out at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we do this with Noah Feldman of Harvard. Uh, His book of eight years ago, Scorpions, is nothing but outstanding. It is the battles and triumphs of FDR's great Supreme Court justices. And we are thrilled that Professor Feldman writes for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, You brought FDR into the title Uh, Noah, of your essay, a decision that will live in infamy. And that goes right back to December 7th of 1941. And we had to decide what to do with the Japanese. What do we get so wrong in incarcerating Japanese if we thought they were spies? What we got wrong is that we got carried away in the very justifiable need to fight our enemy in the war. And then we projected that onto Japanese Americans who were in fact loyal to the United States and not to Japan. And then we interned Japanese Americans and the Supreme Court, to its shame, upheld that decision really out of loyalty to President Roosevelt and in the belief, the mistaken belief that because the internment was anyway coming to an end, no one would really remember it going forward. And instead, we think of the Supreme Court's decision there as one of the worst decisions that the court has ever made. Let's bring it forward then to the rationalizations of Chief Justice Roberts in the deciding vote of Justice Kennedy 
And what they did was say, yes, that was terrible in the 40s, but this is different. Noah Feldman and Justice Sotomayor disagree. Chief Justice Roberts went out of his way to say, oh, Korematsu was terrible, but the, the travel ban is different, he said, because here, on the surface of the ban, there's no reference to people of Muslim origin, just to a bunch of Muslim countries. And therefore, he said, I'm not going to take very seriously the background to the, the ban in which uh, the president and his advisors uh, spoke about the goal of banning Muslim immigrants from the United States. And so as a result, he was able to avoid actually looking at the, the evidence that the lower courts did consider. And Justice Kennedy, who has what is in usual circumstances an admirable history of looking very closely at what government officials mean to do to see whether they're motivated mm -hmm. by, by animus, in this case was willing to join that opinion and basically close his eyes to it. And I think that will be a real deviation from his yeah. record and a stain on his reputation. Justice Stephen Breyer in dissent went to that idea of your phrase, Professor, of mean to do. Operationally, how will this affect the administration? And operationally, can people push against the arching theme of Trump v. Hawaii? It really depends on whether the executive branch uses the system of exemptions that it has in place to make lots of case-by-case -case determinations. Yeah. Ordinary people are fine. And if they are, and they do that, Justice Breyer said, well then, this may not look all that discriminatory. But if they don't, if the government just sort of says, look, if you're from one of these countries, you're excluded, then Justice Breyer said the whole thing looks a lot more like anti-Muslim Okay, so what, what happens if the Trump administration says... Anybody from country ABC can't come in. What did you learn yesterday if that statement is made by the administration? Well, we learned yesterday that the court said that the administration can get away with it as long as they provide really a very minimal justification that says, because we think there are national security concerns. And even if the way they justified it is pretty unconvincing to most reasonable observers, the government will be allowed to, to get away with that. And in that sense, this is a win for the Trump administration. It's a validation for the, for the Trump administration, and it's a defeat for anybody who thinks that the Constitution is supposed right. to stand up and block discrimination. So does this go on forever? I mean, I mean, as you said, Korematsu was going to disappear after the war and all that. And does this get amended down the road if, if the Democrats win three administrations in a row and all of a sudden it's a liberal court again? Does it get changed or is it, locked, is it, is it chiseled in granite as of yesterday? Well, this scenario is probably pretty unlikely to repeat itself. And so what you get, and this is what happened after Korematsu, is the scenario wasn't repeated. But the precedent sat there, as, as Justice Jackson actually said in his dissent in the Korematsu case, the principle sits about like a loaded weapon. It yeah. could always be used under circumstances of crisis. And that's exactly what's going to happen right. here. This decision will sit there like a loaded gun, and it may not be used, but it's always right. possible that it will. And a liberal Supreme Court eventually would probably say exactly what today's court said about Korematsu. Oh, that was terrible. It was wrong. Right. We were so confused, and now we should never We should never have done that. This isn't who we are. If you're just joining us from Harvard, Noah Feldman, he took his law degree at a school that serves good pizza in, in New Haven, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. uh, but Noah Feldman with us. And I can't say enough, folks, about his book, Scorpions, The Battles and Triumphs of FDR's Court. It, the, the whole thing of the 30s, 40s was it was a stacked court that FDR overtly stacked the court. Is that what we're seeing right now with this president? We're not quite at that point yet. You know, by the end, Roosevelt had appointed 
eight justices and a chief justice because he was president for so long. So far, Donald Trump has just gotten one justice. Uh, the question is, will he add more? And I think it's entirely possible if Justice Kennedy resigns this summer and if the president is able to nominate somebody in the Senate, confirm them before the midterms, we may well see an extremely conservative court for at least a generation. On the other hand, if that doesn't happen or if the Democrats yeah. win, win the Senate, it seems entirely probable that they will do just what the Republicans did and block any of Donald Trump's nominees, and then all bets are off. Place Trump v. Hawaii in the phrases that our audience knows, I think, of Roe v. Wade 73 and Brown uh, in the 50s. I mean, where does this case fit in in Noah Feldman's history of the judiciary? Those are cases that were controversial when they were decided. And in the case of Brown against Board of Education, over time, everyone came to accept the outcome. In the case of Roe v. Wade, everyone didn't come to accept the outcome, and they became the basis for long-term social controversy. This is a worse decision in a, in a serious way, because it sends the message that it's open season to discriminate. But it's also unlikely to cause the same kind of long-term arguments, because unlike segregation or abortion, which were long-term social issues, this is a case that's really restricted to this unique restriction on immigrants from, from five Muslim countries. One final question, if I could. Tell us about Justice Roberts. Chief Justice Roberts, he had an acclaimed decision where he went against the, uh, the Republican or right side tide a number of years ago. But, but Chief Justice Roberts, he wrote the majority opinion. He went against the World War II ruling. But what did you learn about Chief Justice John Roberts yesterday? Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts wants to follow the principle of judicial restraint. He wants to avoid judicial activism, but when it's convenient, he will also go, go the other way. What he did here is I think he was really trying to preserve the reputation of the court and try to avoid the court dirtying its hands by dealing with mm -hmm. this travel ban. And I just think he miscalculated. I mean, I think his heart, I don't want to speak about his heart, but I think his intention is to keep the court from getting caught up in very right. great controversies. But I think he made a mistake here, and he did get right. the court caught up in it. I, I've got to ask one final question. Uh, Professor Feldman, you're truly one of the nation's experts on Islamic thought. You studied in Europe as a Rhodes Scholar, and you've taken many hours to study Muslim. When you see the phrases in your essay, anti-Muslim bias, mm -hmm. what does that part of America that feels that, what do they get wrong in their legitimate fears of Islamic extremism? It's that there are absolutely some Muslims who have extreme views and who take extreme actions, but that's not the case for the great overwhelming majority of Muslims. And as is the case with any form of discrimination, the mistake is to stereotype and think that everybody who belongs to a certain category is like the most extreme versions of that category. And that's just not the case for Muslims, and it's certainly not the case mm -hmm. for Muslims who want to immigrate to the United States. Noah Feldman, thank you. We adore that you write for Bloomberg Opinion. I'd also point out that uh, not only has Professor Feldman written uh, on Trump v. Hawaii, but Cass Sunstein has written as well. I'll get both of those essays out in a busy morning here on social uh, media. An exceptionally strong day for Bloomberg Opinion, and I'll uh, move that out on Twitter as well. Noah Feldman is with Harvard.
much. We are advantaged at Bloomberg to have with us one of the jewels of the legal racket, Greg Storr. He is Bloomberg Supreme Court at reporter. Far more than that, he clerked for Judge Kaufman out of Baltimore and spent time at Harvard Law School as well. Greg, wonderful to have you with us this most historic day. I want to go right to what went zeitgeist across this nation yesterday. Professor Feldman's Bloomberg opinion column, uh, which summed up some of the emotion. We'll get to Cass Sunstein in a moment. The worst decision since the infamous Korematsu case when the court upheld the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. These efforts are far too little to save the court or Justice Kennedy from the judgment of history, which will be harsh. Chief Justice Roberts also takes the opportunity to announce that Korematsu, quote, was gravely wrong the day it was decided and has been overruled in the court of history. Greg, will this court decision stay? Will it stick? Or is there room to move here where it will be overruled? And we're looking at Noah Feldman's classic book on a tumultuous court of another time scorpions. What's going to happen two years, Greg, five years down the road? Well, it looks like, at least with this court, it certainly has some staying power, Tom. Uh, the majority really didn't seem like it had that much trouble with this case. It basically, uh, Chief Justice Roberts and the other conservatives looked at the federal immigration <coughs> laws. They said that they give the president very broad discretion to limit who can come into the country. Uh, and they said, when we're talking about a, a claim that he's violated the Constitution, uh, we're not going to uh, deeply second guess his national security judgments. Here, they had a legitimate national security interest, and that was enough for the majority. Right. Let's look at Cass Sunstein now, of course, out of Chicago. His wonderful recent book on impeachment. Here's Cass Sunstein on the 92 pages, the multiple diverse opinions extending to 92 pages. Chief Justice Roberts repudiated Korematsu, as Professor Feldman told us. Justice Kennedy's words are pathetic. And then I thought this was fascinating, Greg. Justice Breyer's quiet commitment to reason-giving and the rule of law, it was has a claim to stand among the most distinguished dissenting opinions in the history of the Supreme Court. What did the quiet Breyer, what did he say? Well, you know, interestingly, so there were two dissents. One was from Justice Sotomayor, who invo invoked Korematsu and said the opinion was a lot like Korematsu. And then there was Justice Breyer, who was focused on a lot of the practicalities of this. And he said the biggest problem he had, or a big problem he had, was that the system is supposed to have an ability to get case-by-case -case waivers for people who don't uh, have any uh, pose any national security threat, who have an urgent need to get into the country for medical care or something like that. And he said, it's not clear to me that that system is working, that anybody has given guidance to consular officers uh, on how to let people apply for case-by-case -case waivers. And so what he really wanted to do was to kick the case back to the lower court and right. say, let's make sure this system actually works. Will that happen? To me, the essence of the, this transaction, this legal moment, this, you know, go back to Roe v. Wade, 73, or Brown uh, decades before that, is what happens, Greg? operationally tomorrow or in 2022 off of Trump v. Hawaii. Operationally, what happens? Well, the, uh, operationally, the administration has very, very broad discretion. Um, you know, Justice Breyer, who's often a bridge builder on the court, he and Justice Kagan, who joined his opinion, are, are two of the justices who try to look for ways to compromise and, and you know, bring in some of their conservative colleagues, but they didn't. Uh, the majority opinion, uh, as I said, says the president has very broad discretion, and they weren't willing to take that step that Justice Breyer said. They weren't willing to uh, force the administration to come back and defend itself in terms of how it's allowing those individual waivers. 
Um, Greg, is, is there, um, are we hearing that actually President Trump may add more countries to his ban? Yeah, so, so it is within his power to do that. That's that's part of it, and to take countries off. They've already taken Chad off the list at an earlier phase, and that was part of the selling point for the president, that um, this is not a rigid ban. It is, however, an indefinite ban. It doesn't disappear unless the president uh, takes an active step. Um, you, you know, this opinion certainly uh, has the potential to embolden the, the White House and the president on all sorts of, of immigration uh, matters and, and border matters matters. And so if he looked at this opinion and said, I have the power to add additional countries, uh, he would probably have some, some legal justification. Greg, Greg uh, Axios, Mike Allen just published his seconds ago at Axios, and he calls it polarization nation and notes in the primaries last night, the liberals did well. We just heard from Kevin really on that. What is the significance in the Greg Store world to a 6-3 court? Kennedy retires, whatever. President Trump does another Gorsuch, fine, I get that. What's, the, what's for you the distinction of going from 5-4 to a 6-3-ish feel? Well, it, it certainly solidifies and extends the conservative majority. Um, there are issues, that we didn't see them this term, there are a significant number of issues where Justice Kennedy sides with the liberals. Abortion rights is certainly one of those, gay rights is certainly one of those. Those precedents would suddenly be in jeopardy. Roe v. Wade would certainly be in jeopardy if, if uh, uh, President Trump got to nominate a successor to, to Justice Kennedy. And, um, you know, this would be a conservative majority that would, you know, in all likelihood be here here, uh, as far as the eye can see, there's not a whole lot of obvious potential for there to be a, mm-hmm. a chance for liberals to shift the court back. Greg Store, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate the early morning activity. He was working all night, of course, on this historic ruling, Trump v. Hawaii. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.